0: If I were to ask you to sort all Jews into two different groups, besides for being an insane question and unfair, which is something we'll probably get into, um, most people, after coming up with a bunch of jokes, which I am not clever enough to come up with at the moment, um, would eventually hit upon uh, the most common answer, I think, which would be Ashkenazi Jews versus Sephardi Jews. Okay. Now, if you're not familiar with those terms, I'm going to very much overly generalize. Um, and the point of this is going to be that there are exceptions, but we're gonna overly generalize, and people will get mad at me later, okay? So, Ashkenazim are from Europe, okay? Um, they're whiter, okay? I'm not gonna wade into that discourse right now, but, you know, superficially, you know, uh, a lot of Ashkenazim are whiter, okay? Um, Historically, they were less open to, you know, secular knowledge. Uh, Halakha was uh, practiced, well, halakha was practiced, you know, but um, the study of halakha was often abstract and theoretical. Uh, They didn't just study the things that were entirely relevant to people's lives, and Tanakh study was, you know, de-emphasized. Food-wise, you know, heavier, classic Jewish deli food, um, you know, the, uh, the type of food that people, you know, will inaccurately describe as, you know, quote-unquote Jewish, that's, you know, Ashkenazi food, whereas Sfardim, uh, are from Spain and the Middle East, Sfar, uh, Sfarad means Spain, okay, um, you know, generally spicier food, okay, um, and historically they were more open to secular knowledge, um, was primarily practical, Uh, the three, you know, Meshechdot, the three tractates of Talmud that most Sephardic, uh, you know, halachic writings are on are, you know, Shabbos, uh, and Nida. In other words, you know, uh, how to keep Shabbos, um, you know, uh, Taran Mishpacha, you know, Hilchot Nida, you know, laws about, you know, family, family, you know, uh, laws. And uh, you know laws about kashrut. Okay, uh, Tanakh study in the Sephardic community in the Svarta communities was much more important, and they, as a result of that, spent a lot more time on grammar and philology and stuff like that. Okay, the issue is. You know as after i've made these very overly generalized you know broad differences there's a tons of variation between those groups like what i said about the ashkenazim you know generally being less open to secular knowledge besides the fact that you know from the enlightenment on that's not true and you know uh, with my bias, I'm mostly talking about like Orthodox Jewish history, within 1600s Poland, there's a group that engaged in philosophy and secular knowledge for like a little bit of a short time and probably would have, you know, continued if not for getting wiped down in the Chmielnicki massacres. Uh, so there were, you know, mystical Sephardim that rejected you know, secular knowledge. There's all these sorts of things. Plus, they're not even the only ones. The, to say that you know, all Jews are Ashkenazim or Sephardim, Uh, is incorrect. There were other communities. You know, like most things, when you try to sort them out into just two groups, there are other things, okay? Um, Lots of communities were actually neither Sephardi or Ashkenazi, either being its own thing or a mixture of both, okay? For an example of a mixture of both, you have Provence, which we talked about with the Ramban, okay? On the border between France and Spain, uh, they had a bunch of things that were Sephardi and then a bunch of things that were, you know, classically Ashkenazi, and, you know, um, they were their own thing. They, they were a mixture of both. We're going to talk today about, uh, you know, a community that was its own thing. We're going to talk, um, okay, they even had their own Nisachat you know, What I mean by that is, like, you know, Ashkenazim and Sephardim, besides for differing on a bunch of different things, and differ on, you know, the the format and the text of, you know, daily prayers, okay, uh, that's typically, like, the thing that you encounter first when you talk about Ashkenazim versus Sephardim. Uh, this community actually has its own Nassar field that's still going on, okay? Um, so we're going to talk about Italy, specifically Renaissance Italy, okay? Um, so first of all, Italy uh, was the first stop for the Jews after the destruction of the Second Temple. A lot of Jews went to, you know, Babylon. A lot of Jews actually were still in Babylon, uh, you know, during the Second Temple era, uh, the first stop for Jews going, you know, the other way uh, was Italy, where, you know, either they were carried off there or they immigrated there, okay? So that community in Italy was and is continuously present since then, okay? They've been there since the Jews, you know, were uh, uh, the the second temple was destroyed, the Jews, you know, were carried off to Italy, okay, that community has been there ever since then, okay? Also, besides for the continuously present people, there were immigrants from Ashkenazi and Sfarad, particularly the latter, after the expulsion from Spain, okay? And also, despite the fact that it is in Europe, or the thing, you know, that we call Europe, okay, had a more open Sephardic uh, pro approach, approach to secular culture, okay? Um, I'm just going to read something from David Berger's article, Judaism and General Culture in Medieval and Early Modern Times, where he talks about the, you know, relationship between different Jewish communities and general culture. Here's what he says about the Italian Jewish community, Okay. This is a community with intellectuals entranced by the rhetorical works of Cicero and Quintilian, and with preachers who lace their sermons with references to classical authors while insisting that the Bible cannot be properly understood without a literary sensitivity nurtured by careful study of Gentile as well as Jewish literature. It is a community with thinkers who set up the Renaissance ideal of Homo Universalis, or Chacham Kolel, as a paradigm of intellectual perfection attained by King Solomon and sought by anyone with healthy educational priorities. It is a community that produced a plan, at least on paper, of setting up what one observer has described as a yeshiva university, where the primary emphasis would be on the study of the written and oral Torah laws, Tosfos and decisors, you know, uh, you know, editor's note here, uh, you know, Ashkenazi ways of learning, but instruction would also be provided in the works of Jewish philosophers, Hebrew grammar, rhetoric, Latin, Italian, logic, medicine, non-Jewish philosophical works, mathematics, cosmography, and astrology, which is stuff that, you know, Sephardic communities in, uh, you know, incorporated into the learning, okay? So that was a quote with some interpolations by me from David Berger, okay? He's, he points out a number of interesting things about this community also. I'm not gonna read the whole article to you because, you know, why would you pay me to do that otherwise? You could go read the article yourself, and I encourage you to. Don't take my word for things, okay? Um, Some interesting, unique features about the Italian Jewish community, though, okay? Uh, Because they've been there since Roman times, there's more continuity with the classical past, okay? These are people who still know Latin, okay? Italian Jews wrote translations of Latin works into, you know, Hebrew or whatever language they were speaking at the time. I don't know if it was Latin... That probably is something I should have researched, but whatever. Okay? They wrote secular poetry, even dirty poetry, um, which is something as did, too, in Golden Age Spain, which may, we may talk about when we, you know, talk about Yehuda Levy, when we get to, uh, you know, uh, that podcast in the philosophy series. Okay? That's another show. Um Aristotelian rationalism, you know, like the Rambam, in some figures, okay? Uh, one figure in particular, Elijah del Megiddo, okay? We'll come back to him. He, he's a little bit important, okay? So he wrote a book promoting Aristotelianism over Kabbalah. In fact, he's one of the first uh, people to question the authenticity of the Zohar. Okay, he says, Zohar, I, I don't think it was written by Roshim Baruchai. Uh, I think this is fake. I think that we should be learning philosophy instead of Kabbalah. Some of you are going like, yeah. Some of you are going like, no. Okay, whatever. That's who he was. Okay, more prevalent, though, is what I'd call non-Aristotelian rationalism. Okay, rationalism that uh, rejected the Arist- Aristotelian version. Okay, um, you know, no- logic, good. Okay, science, good. Observing, you know, what's going on in nature And then writing that down That's good, okay Ethics, also good Metaphysics, eh, nah, nah, not so much, okay We we like the stuff about the science We like the stuff about the, you know Observing this type of animal, and, you know, whatever Um, we're not so big on the, you know Uh, movement of the spheres Or the, you know Um, you know Forms or whatever, okay Um so, to the point that when Bravenel, who we talked about last time, when he comes to Italy, okay, he complains about not being able to find philosophical works, okay? He's like, these, these people don't even have Aristotle. What is going on, okay? But it's not that they didn't do philosophy, all right? It's that they just didn't buy Aristotle's version of it. They looked at it like, you know, I, that's a lot built on nothing, Okay. That means, actually, they're quite a bit ahead of the game, because if you may have noticed, you know, I don't know how many of you are scientists, but we don't use Aristotle a lot these days, okay? He's wrong about a lot of stuff, okay? He, he doesn't believe in gravity. He believes that the, the reason why a stone falls to the ground is because, you know, it wants to return to the Earth, okay? We don't think that anymore, right? We've rejected that paradigm. So they're actually a bit ahead of the time. Um, in that vein, the Kuzari, who's also a medieval philo- who's a medieval philosopher, um, philosopher Is interesting because He's actually like an anti-philosopher He says, this is why Aristotelianism Is dumb, uh, here's my Philosophy of Judaism, again, different show But he undergoes a little bit Of a revival in this you know Community, in this Italian community during the Renaissance Okay, um, even the Cabalists of this era uh, That were in Italy, don't go so far As to reject all forms of philosophical inquiry Okay, most of the time when you see Cabalists or mystics, they're like, you know uh, I reject, you know, rationalism, science. I embrace mysticism, whatever. Italian mystics are not like that. They're like, listen, science Science has some cool stuff to say. I want to be rational about this, but also there's some mystical stuff, okay? That makes them cool, okay? Really fascinating community, one I wish knew more, I knew more about, and one I wish I had even more time to research. Uh, but this, you know, podcast is late enough already, okay? So today we're going to be talking about the guy... Who from that community who you're most likely to encounter uh, in, you know, a typical, you know, Jewish studies curriculum, okay? We're going to talk about Ravavadjus Forno. Um, he's probably the most encountered figure from this community for your average Jew. Uh, he writes a commentary on the Torah that's printed in pretty much all standard editions. Okay, um, There's a standard edition of uh, the Chumash. It is called you know, Mikrot Gedelot, which has all these commentaries around it. He is in all of them. Okay, He's our subject today. Uh, just fair warning, by the way, uh, this is the first episode I really felt a little out of my depth with. Uh, relatively few accessible resources on his life and methodology, and there's some contradiction between those. Uh, So I did the best I could with what I had. Um, But, you know, don't trust me entirely, which it goes all the time. I tell my students that, okay? You shouldn't trust me just because I'm here. You should, you know, trust the sources that I bring. You should you know, double-check me. If you have found that I have made mistakes, please let me know. Okay? So, let's get into Sfardo. Remember, a lot of these facts... Might be disputed. Take me with a grain of salt. Okay. So he is born in 1475 in Cesena. Uh, I may not be pronouncing that correctly. Near Bertinoro, uh, which I believe is how you're supposed to pronounce Bartinora. Okay. So if you want to be a jerk, and the next time somebody passes you a glass of Bartinora, you can say no, no, no. It's Bertinoro. Okay. You could do that. I don't recommend it, but you can do it. Okay. As an adult, uh, around, you know, uh, he's like 18 to 20, something like that, he moves to Rome, okay? He attends college, he becomes well-versed in general studies, philosophy, linguistics, math, medicine, okay? I remember I was talking to a friend of mine, uh, and I was talking about, like, a figure from this era who I'll get to, and in his Wikipedia bio it says, like, and he learned all of the subjects that were all of human knowledge at that time. Uh, And I was like, wow, that's pretty impressive. And my friend was like, actually, not really. Uh, That was a book. That was a book, like one book, okay? So he learned that book. He learned all of the general studies knowledge that was at that time. It was a book, okay? Um, He becomes a doctor in 1501, okay? So he didn't just know the book. He also knew how to heal people, okay? I want to point out, though, there's people around this time in Italy who you have heard of. Okay? Or if you haven't heard of, I will introduce you to them, and then you'll be that much smarter. Okay, uh, Pico della Mirandola uh, f- lived 1463 to 1494. He's writer of the founding document of the Renaissance, uh, Oration on the Dignity of Man, which we'll get into. Okay, um, He had a rabbi teacher. Remember uh, El- Elijah del Megiddo, who I mentioned above, the-, the guy who wrote that thing against the Zohar? So Pico, as he's normally referred to, is seen as the founder of something called Christian Kabbalah. Uh so that must have pissed him off, right? Uh here here's what I know about Judaism. Here's this Kabbalah stuff. I don't buy it. Uh Pico's like, huh, I like that stuff. I'm gonna call it Christian Kabbalah. I'm gonna come up with my own thing, call it Christian Kabbalah. You know, presumably Elijah Del Megado was like, God damn it. Okay. Um also alive during so again, lifetime overlaps with uh Sforno, okay? Uh, also alive during this time. Leonardo da Vinci, 1452 to 1519. Uh, the Last Supper is completed in 1498, while farno was in college, okay? Michelangelo, also born 1475, okay? He's in Rome, 1496 to 1499. It's kind of possible that him and Saffarno were in the same room, or, you know, even met. Might have talked even at some point. I'll explain to, you know, I'll explain later how that is, you know, even more possible than you think, okay? Um... We'll explain that now, okay? Back to Sforno. He has financial problems, okay? Got to put himself through college. You know? You know the grind, okay? So he starts tutoring for the subjects he knows. Um, you know, all that, the book, right? The Book of uh, General Studies, okay? Uh, he becomes a popular tutor, okay? Non-Jews want to learn Hebrew from him, okay? It's, again, possible that some of these Renaissance guys that you've heard of uh, learn from him at some point. It's possible he was their Hebrew tutor, okay? Um, we know of one for sure, okay, this guy named Johannes Ruchlin I don't know, I don't know how to pronounce anything I'm just doing my best here, okay he becomes later famous as a defender of the Jews, okay, anytime that they want to like, you know, burn the Talmud or try to convert them, uh, Ruchlin Ruchlin, whatever is, you know, out there trying to defend them okay, really amazing guy, he sacrificed a lot to to defend the Jews, okay, and it's all because Sferno taught him he had Sforno as a tutor and he was like, That guy's really cool. His people are really cool. I'm gonna, you know, make my life's work to defend this guy and his people. Okay? I think that tells you Sforno was a really great teacher. Okay? Not all teachers inspire you to like take up their life's work as your own as your own and defend them and like sacrifice professional opportunities. Okay? Sforno also seems to have a relationship to Prince Henry II of France. Okay? two of his commentaries, Shirashirman and Kohelet, Song of Songs and Ecclesiastes, hopefully I pronounced that correctly, um, you know, are dedicated to him, and he also translated his own philosophical work into Latin and sent it to him, okay? So, it's not just that Sforno, you know, uh, learned secular studies, and it's not just that, you know, Sforno was a rabbi. He had friends in high places, okay? And he was, you know, he knew non-Jews. He may have taught any of these Renaissance guys. I don't know, okay? Um... You know, he becomes rabbi and community leader in Rome for three decades. Okay, Then he ends up wandering a bit and ends up in uh, B- Bologna? B- Bologna? 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 I don't know. Um, he, there he's head of the Bastin and Rosh Hashiva, which is actually rarer than you think, though it was typically two different positions. Uh, he also gets a printing press back up and running. Um, interestingly, like, reputation-wise during that period, he's known as an outstanding halachist, but we don't have any of his halachic works. Okay, we only have his, uh, you know, uh, commentaries. Okay, Uh, he conducted yeshiva until his death in 1550. Okay, so that's his life. Okay, Uh, those are the bare details of his life. That's what I was able to put together. Let's talk about Sforno's commentary now, okay? Um, The context we've painted so far, remember how, you know, remember how we talked about the people he could have met, is actually pretty essential, okay? Renaissance is going on now, okay? He's got a broad education, And the Jewish community is living during that era and they are educated and they are open and they're, you know, talking with people. They're learning things. Okay. Um, You know, we have people reading a lot more. We have people reading literature, history, philosophy, science. So we've got a bunch of educated Jewish people who are in the midst of the most creative period possibly in human history. uh, And they suddenly have really high standards for the stuff that they're reading. Okay. They're an affluent community also, okay? They're doing business deals, they're, you know, buying art, maybe, I don't know, okay? Uh, They don't have much time, okay? So they open up the Torah, you know, to read on on Shabbos afternoon, okay, after their nice little Shabbos meal, and they start reading, and they're like, hey, hey, wait a minute, okay? This, this does not seem historically accurate. This, this over here does not seem scientifically possible, uh, this does not jive with the high-minded ideals I'm used to. Uh, this writing is weird. It contradicts itself. I don't like it. Okay? So, now, Sforno, he's hearing all these complaints from people, presumably. Okay? he op- When he opens up his commentary in his introduction, okay, he's outlining his goals and his target audience. Okay? Here's part of what he writes. I'm quoting here. Okay? <clears throat> because our people dwell in an alien land and concentrate their efforts on the accumulation of wealth, feeling that this will protect them from the exigencies of their time, this in turn results in a condition where they have no proper time to consider the wonders and wisdom of our Torah, and even brings them to question the importance of our holy Torah, becoming critical of its teaching for the teachings, for they do not understand it properly. Okay, So people in Spharno's community are not properly appreciating the Torah. They're even critical of it. Okay, and they don't have the time to really sit down and delve deeper. Okay? so Sforno's writing his commentary for those people. So what's he going to do? What's he going to do about this? Okay, now first thing he's going to do, he's going to keep it short. Okay, Sforno rivals Rashi in his brevity, and like Rashi, it's not an unclear brevity. He's not like, you know, I'm going to write one sentence, figure it out. He's very clear. Okay. Uh, he's going to leave out the question for you, though. He's not going to tell you like, "This is my question, and now here's my answer." He's just going to write a comment. He, he trusts his audience. His audience are, you know, intelligent, educated people. They'll be able to figure out what he's asking. Okay. He also doesn't mess around with grammar so much. We talked about this with the Barbenel. Okay. I think that has to do with keeping his readers' attention spans. They don't have a lot of time. They're going to get bored if he just, you know, keeps doing grammar stuff. Okay. He's got to keep it exciting. He's got to move fast. Okay also he's mostly a pshat guy he's mostly a simple meaning of the text guy his audience is a sophisticated literary audience okay they're not going to buy things that venture far from the plain meaning okay his audience is also isn't going to go for contradictions in the text so when he sees you know something that might be contradicting something else he's going to point that out and he's going to try to remedy that situation they're also just not going to accept an explanation just because a prior authority says it. Okay, which was you know kind of the whole point of the Renaissance. Uh, so Sforno isn't afraid to disagree with his predecessors. Okay, he's also he's not averse to the occasional mystical or allegorical reading. Again, the you know divide between rationalism and mysticism wasn't as stark uh, in Italy as it was other places. But those are mostly exceptions that prove the rule. And even though he's a shot guy. He knows his audience isn't going to go for things that seem scientifically or philosophically far-fetched, ditto for things that are problematic ethically, which is something we're going to expand on a lot, okay? So, the Sforno is writing for a sophisticated, educated audience who want the Torah to be reasoned, logical, relevant, not redundant or difficult to accept, and they want that in 30 minutes or less. So he's going to try to explain the pshat, resolve contradictions, and make the text relevant to his audience, okay? So how's he going to do that? What kind of themes is he going to have in his commentary? What kind of things is he going to stress? What kind of ideology is he going to promote to make it relevant for his audience? Okay, Let's go back to the Renaissance a second. If you learned history in high school, or middle school, or college, or whatever, the okay? Renaissance was part of it. One of your vocab words or key terms, one of those things that was definitely going to be on the test, one of those short answer questions like, you know, define this term, okay, was humanism. Okay, Today, that's usually a synonym for atheism. Okay, people are, you know, uh, when when atheists are like, you know, we're part of the humanist society, whatever. Renaissance humanists were, for the most part, pretty firm Christians, okay? So it means a different thing than just, you know, atheists, okay? It was just that rather than preaching about how lonely and unworthy humanity is as opposed to God... Like you know, Christian medieval Christians had been doing for centuries. Okay, and this world being just useless and a means to the afterlife, and if you're going to you know spend your money, you might as you you need to spend it like you know giving uh, yeah spend it on you know uh, completely you know uh, religious things and never spend it on like secular means or whatever. Okay, um, you man so in place of that, in place of this, you know very low on humanity, very big on God, you know, kind of theme that had been medieval Christianity prior to it, okay? In Renaissance humanism, humanity is put at the center of creation, and the goal of humanity is not to follow religious strictures as best as you can and get reward in the afterlife. The goal is humanity improving itself in the here and now, okay? Humanity has freedom, creativity, dominion over nature, and with that, humanity can be capital G Great. Okay, this did not mean that they rejected God. They just thought that humanity had a more, uh, you know, outsized role in creation and in you know the divine scheme than uh, you know previously said. You know, before it was like man is lonely and lonely and sinful, and now it was like man can accomplish a lot. Okay, let's look at this quote from. You know, Pico della Mirandola's oration and the dignity of man, which I mentioned before, uh, is seen as a mission statement of the Renaissance, and it's it's pretty cool. Uh, I like it. Okay, let's and it's uh, you know very high high-minded sounding. So let's let's read it in the appropriate tone. Okay, at last, the supreme maker decreed that this creature, to whom he could give nothing wholly his own, should have a share in the particular endowment of every creature. Taking man, therefore, this creature of indeterminate image, he set him in the middle of the world, and thus spoke to him. We have given you, O Adam, no visage proper to yourself, nor endowment properly your own, in order that whatever place, whatever form, whatever gifts you may with premeditation select, these same you may have and possess through your own judgment and decision. The nature of all other creatures is defined and restricted within laws which we have laid down, you, by contrast, impeded by no such restrictions, made by your own free will, to whose custody we have assigned you, trace for yourself the lineaments of your own nature. I have placed you at the very center of the world, so that, from, so that from that vantage point you may with greater ease glance round about you and all the world contains. We have made you a creature neither of heaven nor of earth, neither mortal nor immortal, in order that you may, as the free and proud shaper of your own being, fashion yourself in the form you may prefer. It will be in your power to descend to the lower brutish forms of life. You will be able, through your own decision, to rise again to the superior orders whose life is divine. Okay? So again, very high-minded there. Okay? Notice what traits of humans are stressed here. Okay? Freedom. Okay? Humans are given freedom of will, unlike all of other creation, You know we have the freedom to uh we you know which is set up set by you know nature's laws we have the freedom to transcend those laws okay through creativity okay ability to transcend and dominate nature okay we even have the freedom to do bad in other words you know humans could be greater than animals and on a you know divine level okay which he means by that he means he doesn't mean god as much as angels but we'll get to it okay um, but, you know, you could you, you could be, you know, greater than, than uh, on the level of, div- of divinity Or you could, you know, be lower than animals because you've made the choice to do so, okay? So humanity is not bound by nature in the same way that animals are, okay? Humanity is greater than that, that Humanity is able to transcend nature, okay? And, you know, that's what makes humanity great the ability to, you know, the, the freedom and creativity and ability to transcend and dominate nature, okay? So this is what's going on in Christianity, in Renaissance Italy, okay? Humanity has power, freedom, creativity, and almost divinity. Okay, the drama of creation is humans fulfilling their potential. It's not just you know humans you know following the letter of the law, doing doing what they can to get brownie points, so that after you know after 120 or whatever, probably less since it was a medieval era, okay, uh, you come up to God and you get like heaven and stuff. Okay, this is more like you know we are sent here to like be great, capital G great. Okay. Now, I would argue that this idea of humanity never quite went away in Judaism, okay? I'm generally against Judaism-says kinds of statements, especially statements that are as opposed to Christianity, Judaism says, which are almost always oversimplifications and a lot of times are just false, okay? But I'd say there's a bit more of this bold humanism, even in medieval sources, which I'd quote a bunch of, but I'm already behind on this. It's even right there in Tehillim for uh, Peric 8, okay? You can look that up on your own. Also, again, uh, Pico was taught by rabbis who were very disappointed in him when he turned Kabbalist, or whatever. Uh, this essay may reflect their influence. Okay? Now, back to Sforno, okay? Sforno really brings this Renaissance humanism into his work, okay? When he explains what humanity being created in the image of God means, okay? In Bereshit, you know, 126, Genesis 126, okay? He explains it as, unlike angels, you know, humans have freedom of choice and will. Angels are like, you know, divine creations that have one job. Humanity has, you know, freedom of choice and freedom of will, and they could do bad, they could do good, okay? In that way, they're like God, who has ultimate freedom of choice and will because he's God, okay? Angels are stationary. They don't move. They don't, you know, they don't get better, they don't get worse. They're just there, okay? Uh... So, uh, you know, that's Forno on the image of God uh, in, in humanity. And pre- Pico would pretty much sign off on all of that, okay? Notice the, you know, the, the similarities between the two, okay? In Vayikra, 1347, he writes an uncharacteristically long essay about this, okay? Uh, Humans are able to be godlike because they have the freedom of choice and will. Again, that's what he says there. Uh, Which makes them the purpose of creation? I think that's what he's adding there. He also adds a religious spin here, because he's talking about the laws of Tzuran and trying to explain what the purpose of them is, which is, by following the mitzvot, we make ourselves more in line with divinity. We make ourselves more divine, with more dominion over nature slash our physical selves. So right off the bat, we see the is starting from an idea of Judaism that's humanistic. You know, humans are meant to improve themselves. Humans have the ability to transcend nature, to be creative and free forces of will and choice. In that sense, humanity is like God, and the point of Judaism is to guide us towards that divine transcending of nature and freedom, that ultimate creativity, by aligning ourselves with God's guidance on how to do that, okay? So there are people who are going to claim that Sporno took humanism and added a religious spin to it, rescuing it from, you know, anti-Torah ideologies, and that's how, you know, spins it, okay? I think that's overstated. Humanism was not secular during the Renaissance. All of, these idea- all of these ideas are pretty standard Renaissance humanism. There are small but important differences, though. Okay, Swarno says that God sets the rules of what you need to do to be more quote humanist. Okay, if you want to be a true humanist, you need to have you know dominion over nature. You need to be ultimately creative. You need to have you know freedom of will and choice. And in order to do that, right, you need to follow the rules that God has set. God has set the guidelines. Right? I know there's a bit of a paradox there. Like, in order to be truly free, you have to follow these rules. But he's saying that, like, God is telling you, these are the things that make you more free. Follow those, and then you'll be able to, you know, transcend nature, blah, blah, blah. Okay? This is less reclaiming humanism than adapting it from a Christian context to a Jewish one. Okay. Christian contexts are not gonna have something which is like, and therefore you need to follow all of the rules that include things like, you know, not wearing shotness. Right? They're not going to have that. They're not going to have, like, the ritual laws stuff. Right? So he's adapting it to a Jewish context by saying, like, the reason why we follow all these rules is so that you can be the ultimate creative being, blah, blah, blah. Okay? So let's talk... So there are more humanistic features that align with Renaissance thought, and some which are particularly interesting. Let's start with some ancillary features. These are not, you know, features that are, like, you know, um, really, you know the thing that sets Sparno apart, but these are things that are like, oh, I see what he's doing there, okay? So first of all, as we, you know, noted before, dude went to college. Learned guy, okay? Makes use of science slash medical knowledge, okay? He's a doctor, okay? Uh, In Bamidbar 1318, okay? Moshe instructs the spies checking out Eretz Yisrael, you know, find out, are the people who dwell in it strong or weak, few or many, okay? Sforno there says, you know, and he's quoting Chachme HaRofim, in other words, the, the, the you know, the wise doctors, okay? You need to check out, the reason why you need to check out the health of the people and the population is to find out whether the climate is good, okay? You're sent there to find out, you know, things about the climate, okay? One way to check out uh, whether climate is good is, is it producing more people? And are those people healthy, Okay? So, this seems, you know, very, you know, intuitive, straightforward, but he's quoting, like, you know, doctors to say this. Like, I know from my medical knowledge that, you know, if you have a good climate, there's going to be more people, and those people are going to be healthier. Okay? Also, true to to his era, he sees aesthetics as valuable. Like, beauty and arts and, you know, uh, stuff that's not just, you know, functional, but also just, you know, um, for aesthetic purposes. Okay? He which is, you know, true to his era. Again, he's in possibly the greatest era for art ever, okay? It'd be weird if he didn't find art valuable, okay? Baratia 2 2.9, okay? God creates the fruit in the garden, and it's pleasant to look at, okay? Uh, Sforno there says the fruit being good-looking enhances one's ability to receive spiritual flow, okay? So that's a little, you know, out there. I'm going to try to explain that, Okay. Putting yourself in a mindset to appreciate beauty means that you're tapping into something beyond just words, or beyond just like you know ideas. You're putting yourself in a uh, ability. You're putting yourself in a mindset in which you can receive spirituality. Okay, some of you are rolling your eyes right now, uh, but that's what he says. Okay, and he sees that as coming from the fruit's aesthetic value. It wasn't just you know functional in that it tastes good or that it was nutritious. It's also it looked good. The fact that it looked good had spiritual value. Okay, um, you know, Rav Cook apparently remarked that the light of creation. There's a measure that says that you know when God says there uh, there will be light, and then he later says like I'm creating the sun and the moon and the stars. Uh, the obvious question is like well you know that's the sun uh, provides the light, right? And then we know now that, like, no, not really. But uh, there's a Medrash that says that, no, the light of the first day was, you know, hidden after the first day and set aside for the righteous, okay? And Ruff Cook apparently remarked that the light, this light of creation, which, according to the Medrash, was hidden away for the righteous, was apparent in Rembrandt's paintings, okay? Uh, this is so... Rav Cook also there sees, like, you know, spiritual value in something being, you know, aesthetically pleasing or beautiful, right? Um, this is actually rare and somewhat controversial for Jewish thinkers, okay, which we're going to get into a little bit later, okay? But Rav Cook kind of got looked funny for this kind of stuff, okay? And Sparno is, you know, rare in his, you know, art is good kind of thing, okay? so But the real meat and potatoes of Sparno's approach is his focus on ethics, Okay? this makes sense. Like we said, he's writing for an audience, which is reading the Torah and being critical of it. Uh, My experience is that people, at least the ones I've met, I haven't been in Renaissance Italy, but, you know, the ones I've met in this era, which is not so different, we'll get to that a little later, okay, they're much more bothered by ethics than they are literary sensibility or logical consistency or whether things chronologically match up, right? People, you know, don't leave Judaism because, like, you know, I didn't like the literary form of, you know, Safer Beresian. People leave Judaism because, like, I find this immoral. Okay? Uh, so Sforno's big on ethics. It's his most identifiable, uh, identifiable feature. Okay? Even before I started re- researching him, I knew that much. Okay? Uh, Musser Thinkers, the 19th century rabbinic movement that, you know, focused on ethical behavior. That's another show. They love him. Okay? Um, so remember how we said that the point of Judaism is to align yourself with God, okay? That's actually pretty boilerplate language for a lot of thinkers, but Sephardim means it different than other thinkers would, okay? He doesn't mean that you're aligning yourself with God in a, you know, mystical way, with your soul uniting with divinity. He doesn't mean it in a philosophical way, like the Rambam way, that, you know, what your mind is comprehending, you know, God. He means this mostly as an ethical goal. By following divine ethics, we're able to act in a divine way. He sees the purpose of the Torah as ethical refinement. Okay? So, he's, one of the things that sets him apart is that he's particularly intent on when he sees a story in Chumash. He's like, and the moral lesson of the story is X, Y, Z. Okay? He wants to show you that this is trying to teach you something moral. Okay, so for example, you know, I'm only going to give one example, but you know, open up to anything. in Forno, it's going to be there. Okay, Yosef feeds his family in Egypt. Okay, Yosef, the, uh, Yosef who was you know uh, uh, second in command to the king or whatever he was. Okay, uh, his family comes down to Egypt, and he feeds his family from the um, you know store of grain that he he had. He gives them you know portions just like everybody else. Okay, Sporno comments there. Even though he had the power to increase food for them, he gave them a sufficient amount. He didn't give the he, the said he gave them a sufficient amount. It doesn't say that he gave them like you know great amount of food. Okay, as they of blessed memory said, when society at large is in distress, a person should not say, "I will go to my home, eat, dr- eat and drink, and my soul will be at peace." Okay. So, Sforna's pointing out that the reason why Yosef doesn't, like, say, hey, family, eat as much grain as you want is because, like, people are dying out there. There's a famine. That's why he stored away grain to begin with. Okay? Kind of be a jerk move if he was just, like, you know, I don't care about other people. I'll do what I want when people are dying. Um, you know, might be relevant for today. Might be. I don't know. Okay. So, uh, another thing that... Uh, Sferno does is uh, you know, a constant theme in his writings is that you know you should never give up on repenting. Uh, you should never give up on you know your ability to um, you know uh, refine yourself ethically. Uh, he quotes 33 uh, 33:11 a lot which says you know it is not my, God God is talking it is not my desire that the wicked shall die but that the wicked turn from his evil ways and live okay It's not you know God doesn't want evil people to just keep being evil. He wants people to improve. He wants people to get better. Okay? It follows logically from his stress on freedom of choice. Okay? Um, If you have freedom of choice, and that's the thing that sets you as a human being apart, then that must mean that you're always able to ethically refine yourself. Okay? Interestingly, and this is not what I expected when I started researching this, uh, his attitude towards, you know sins of the Avot, of, you know, the uh, the important figures in Chumash, is uh, not that, like, and from this story you see that you shouldn't be like this, like our Avot, it's actually he's going to try to find a uh, justification for anything that the Avot did, okay? He's actually the first commentator to try and justify the sale of Yosef. Okay? This is something interesting that I've noticed. is very clear with us that there's an apologetic nature to his, uh, to his commentary. You know there are people who don't like the, uh, don't like what the Torah is teaching, and I've got to show them that the Torah is actually good. Uh, and in order to do that, I want them to just show them that the, the moral lessons there. Okay. Sometimes that can go to a point where you're willing, where you're willing and able, you know, using you know your creativity and you know cre- and pa- creative powers to justify anything that's in the Torah, even when that may not necessarily be justified. Okay, so. One thing you have to worry about when you're, you know, a rabbinic leader or somebody who's trying to, you know, come up with, uh, you know, an idea of Judaism is that, like, you know, you don't need to justify everything, okay? Um, Listen, Sferno had his derich, had his methodology. That was part of his methodology. But it just points to the fact that, like, you know, if you're coming to justify everything, then there are going to be times that you may go overboard. I don't know. If uh, if I'm criticizing Sforno uh, more than is necessary, then you know, I'll move when the lightning strikes. But, you know, um, it wasn't what I expected from him coming in, because I expected him to, like, from this story, from the story of Yosef, you see, don't be a jerk to your brothers. But really, it's like, you know, if uh, the way that he sees the sale of Yosef is that, you know, this was morally justified because they thought that he was trying to kill them. Okay. Um... One other thing, one other feature, another feature of uh, Sforno's commentary is that he is a little bit of a universalist. Okay, um, he sees uh, he's concerned about ethics towards non-Jews. Okay, um, for you know, starting with that. Okay, uh, as part of his like you know ethical way of viewing the Torah, um, he's you know going to say like you know don't be uh, don't be a jerk towards non-Jews. Okay? Uh, one unique thing that he does is, you know, there's a commandment, don't lend with interest. And that, you know, historically has been interpreted, don't lend with interest to Jews. You can lend with whatever you want to non-Jews. He's actually, you know, I've never seen this before, it might be other people. He actually reinterprets the pasuk to mean, uh, don't lend with interest, period, also non-Jews okay so he's concerned about the ethics not just of you know lending to, to jews but also lending to non-jews okay he has though a multi-tiered viewed of uh, view of divine providence okay he sees that you know originally god wanted you know the world to improve uh, and he wanted to you know have direct divine providence with everybody and he saw that didn't work so he made so he said i'm gonna set apart one nation and I'm going to have direct, you know, divine providence with them. And through them, the world is going to be created. So he does see that, like, you know, Jews are valued above non-Jews in a way, in that they're closer to God. But he sees that as, like, part of a universalistic theme, uh, scheme in which, like, the point is to improve all of humanity. And, and that's going to, you know, show up in Riff Cook also, stuff like that. Okay. Um one thing which is a little bit controversial and I'll explain why. Uh another thing that's in Sforno is, you know, this worldism, what we'll call this worldism, okay? Humanism, very big on this worldism. They de-stressed the hereafter for the here and now. Okay? Don't worry so much about collecting brownie points for the afterlife. Okay? We're in this world. Let's try to, you know, do our best that's in this world. Uh, you know, also don't deny yourself, you know, pleasure just because you're in this world. Okay, uh, we're in this world. De-stress, you know, the the hereafter. Okay, so Sforno can't quite deny the existence of the next world, um, and it's not like you know I wish I could deny it, but you know I'm being forced to stop. I don't think he wanted to. Okay, he wanted to be a firm Jew. He wanted to be you know, uh, you know, he wanted to be you know, within Jewish tradition. Okay, I also don't think this makes him unusual among humanists of the era who are again mostly religious. Okay. But he does seem to de-emphasize it. Okay, the point of the uh, the point of Judaism, according to Sforno, is ethical refinement. It's not collecting brownie points. Okay, he he says, you know, no one knows or can comprehend what's in the next world. Uh, he does seem to stress in a couple of places reward in this world over reward in the next. Okay, on the commandment to honor your parents, which says, you know honor uh, your parents so you'll live a long life on this land he says you know contrary to chazal who say that like what that means is you will get olam haba he says that this the war reward is in this world uh but that this world this world reward is not like you know and then god will give you you know good stuff it's you get to give a live life uh it's not like you know brownie points it's you know you get to live an ethical life and you get to you know live long and you know treat people ethically That's good reward okay Garnas Some of you may be like, where's my candy? But... whatever. Okay? Um, Ars Girls' intro does not agree. You know, one of the sources I was using here was the intro to the Ars Girls translation. Uh, and they don't agree, and it's a little bit protest too much. Okay? Uh, it goes like, here's all the things he says about how great Olam Haba is and how important it is. And except that like, in the context of large tr- Jewish tradition, it is actually a de-emphasis. Okay? So, a little bit more on Aristotle's intro. One of the sources I use also does something I think is worth calling out. Okay, so remember how I said Sparno valuing at aesthetics is a little bit controversial. That like the idea of like you know things that are beautiful are good, not just for you know, uh, you know not just for function but also for uh, form, right? So, you know, Aristotle lists that as one of the things that he values, and they follow up that list, listing that feature with this. Okay. Listen. Up. It is important to remember that Sforno lived at the time of the Renaissance, a period when people were exposed to great art, classical music, and literature, all of which appeal to man's aesthetic sense. It is understandable, therefore, that in addressing his contemporaries, he considered it important to demonstrate that the Torah is sensitive to man's emotions, sensitivities, and feelings. The Sforno was writing for the readers of his time. Just as Rambam in his Guide for the Perplexed spoke to the contemporaries in, uh, his contemporaries in their language, attempting to resolve their problems and answer their questions in a manner of Torah, or Samson Raphael Hirsch did the same in the 19th century uh, in in his Choreb, and so does Forno in the 16th century. All great commentators and teachers must gear their style and approach to the audience at hand, for they must be relevant and reasonable in order to appeal to the hearts and minds of their students. It is amazing that even though Sforno spoke to his contemporaries four centuries ago his comments are as fresh engaging and modern as if they had been written today okay it's very interesting to me that this is where they decided to put the he was writing with a specific audience mind disclaimer okay and that's what it is it even though it does conclude with like and some of it and a lot of it is still relevant today it is a disclaimer the fact that they put them usually in the harita community it's meant to apologize—this, you know, disclaimer is meant to apologize for or diminish the present value of a work that has, quote-unquote, problematic ideas. Look, they bring the Rambam and Rav Hirsch as examples, okay? Rambam was only doing philosophy because he needed to respond to the people of his time. Rav Hirsch was only saying good things about studying secular subjects as he was responding to the people of the time. The unstated, you know, thing there is that, and now we don't need it. okay. They only said what they said because that was what was needed at the time really they would have agreed with us and our values okay so despite that last sentence it's like they expected their readers to go like valuing art and now they're going no 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 don't worry he was writing for the audience he, he may not even believed it really he was just trying to convince people to do the tourist thing right so i want to end off by challenging the idea that a work being for a specific context devalues or diminishes it or makes its utility limited First of all, just the claim that he really only did it to respond to the people back then, really, he would have agreed with us? You do realize Sforno was also people back then, right? There's no reason to believe that he wasn't part of the audience he was talking to, okay? Uh, he probably was... The, the questions that he asked, he didn't ask just because, like, he was just thinking, like, oh, that's what somebody dumb would ask. He was like, no, somebody intelligent, somebody like me would ask this question, Okay. Second of all, this assumes that all historical contexts are, you know, 100% unique, never come about again, and that one context Torah is irrelevant to another context. Okay, so first of all, right off the bat, that seems heretical. Okay, Torah was given at Sinai. This is never relevant again. Okay, but besides that, all the things about Sephora's audience, and, you know, the article hints at this, they're not less relevant today. If anything, they're more relevant today. Almost everything Sephora writes, or does, is something that's not out of place today. Kind of amazing, right? Educated audience bothered by uncritical readings but has limited time? That's like, what, half of modern orthodoxy? Conservatively, okay? Third of all, this assumes that it's like a bad thing or like a necessary evil to make Torah appeal to an audience. Obviously, if there's out-and-out dishonesty, that's one thing, okay? But to assume that no one should be trying to reach people where they're at means, is I often rail against on this show, there is only one type of person that is allowed to be Jewish, and anyone who doesn't fit that right off the bat is just a lost cause. We don't need to appeal to that person. They're just gone. Right? They're just gone forever. Who You know, no need to adjust the way that we're teaching. They're just, you know, gone forever. Right? Sforno actually criticizes people who don't have their audience in mind when they teach Torah, who teach their irrelevant Torah and go, take it or leave it. My view is... If you're placed within a certain historical context, you're placed there by God to make sense of Torah and Judaism within the context you're in. You don't get to complain about when or where you were born. Well, eh, Torah was pure in my idealized version of a Volodian. First off, it wasn't just historically speaking. Uh, more importantly, you're not a Lithuanian kid in the 19th century, right? There's obviously a place for timelessness and a plain place for pushback on trends. I'll admit I, you know, blanch when people demand relevance as the be all and end all of all, you know, you know Jewish classes, okay? Like when I'm teaching Amara, not every shear will end and this is this teaches us about COVID-19. Sometimes it's just going to be and that's why a bias answer doesn't work. But to dismiss ideas because they were in your view, only reacting to their context and not expressing "quote unquote true Torah" is telling people that you're willing to sacrifice a lot of Jewish souls on the altar of misguided intellectual purity. We should not be in the business of deciding that only one kind of person gets to participate in our tradition. And Sforno did not do that. He did not just dismiss the humanists or the people critical of the Torah. He did not just go, Well, you don't even have time to read the thing. How can you criticize it? He tried to help. He tried to show people that you too fit in. That's what we should demand from our leaders. Engage with the community. Listen to the community. Don't dismiss the context that you're in. And that's for now. I'll see you next time when we discuss... Well, I haven't decided it yet, but I'll, you know, taking suggestions. I'll see you later. All right? Hi, this is Akiva Weisinger, and uh, the guy who does this podcast. And if you liked what you heard... Uh, please consider uh s- subscribing to our patreon uh which would help us uh grow and uh give us money to invest in this podcast buying books buying uh, other supplies and uh, it would you know uh help me continue to uh help me focus on this podcast more exclusively um so if you like what you heard uh go to patreon uh, dot com Torah, and uh Sign up. You could sign up for like five dollars, and there's going to be stuff that will show up just for Patreon subscribers. Uh, and uh, feel you know it'll help me out. All right, tower.